If you have your Bibles or the Bible app, go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're picking up where we left off last week. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll begin this morning in verse 11. It was billed as one of the greatest sporting events of all time. Two just enormous giants going to face off against one another. It was, it was absolutely incredible. There was nothing in the sporting world or really the world before or after that like it that would ever be seen again. And I was captivated by it. And so was my friend Austin. And so we sat together five days after WrestleMania 6 and we watched on tape delay as Hulk Hogan was going to face off against this new guy named the Ultimate Warrior. And I was a huge Hulk Hogan fan and I was so excited to see him do what he had done time and time again, brother. And that was to win and he was going to defend his WWF championship and be victorious. And I couldn't wait to see what had happened five days ago that probably happened too late at night or was just too expensive for us. And this was back in the days of pay-per-view when you bought a pay-per-view and you'd pop the tape and the VCR and you'd hit record. And so that's what Austin's uncle did for us as he watched the show. And then we got the tape and we were so excited. And we sat through two hours or so of wrestling all to get to what we really wanted to see. And that was Hulk. Hulk Hogan face off against the Ultimate Warrior. And the Ultimate Warrior was the Intercontinental Champion. Hulk was the World Heavyweight Champion. And they were going to face off. And so being that the Ultimate Warrior was the Intercontinental Champion, his music hits and he comes running out in the Toronto Sky Dome. And I look over and my friend starts cheering. And I just looked at him and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm an Ultimate Warrior fan. Like, you can't be an Ultimate Warrior fan. Why not? This was the first time in my life that I was ever engaged in an argument that there wasn't a clear-cut answer. Now, whenever I'd argued with my parents, they were always right. Not necessarily because they were always right, but they were just bigger and could spank me. And so this was the first time I can remember in my life where I'm engaged in an argument that there might not be a clear-cut answer. And so I look for Austin's mom, and she's in the other room. And I'm like, tell Austin he can't root for the Ultimate Warrior. And she's like, he can root for whoever he wants, and you can root for whoever you want. And so Hulk Hogan comes out, and I start cheering. And then Austin and I start the wrestling before Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior even started the wrestling. And then we break it up, and we watch what was a wrestling match. And spoiler alert, okay, if you're a wrestling fan, spoiler alert in three, two, one. It's all fake anyways. It's all not real. But it's an industry that is built on developing rivalries and getting people to put an emotional attachment in a, in a wrestler and to cheer for that person. And this is really how the sporting world at large is built. We, we understand that. I mean, right now, what's going on? The Winter Olympics are going on. What that means is once every four years, we all gather around the television for two weeks in our patriotic gear and care about sports we don't care about for the last four years. And we won't care about for the next four years until another Olympics is manufactured. I mean, and so there we have the clear country distinction. And so we're like, USA, USA, USA. And we loved it yesterday when they beat those communists in Russia three to two in the hockey shootout. We loved it. It was great. And so we, we just define that way. But that's not enough for us because the Olympics are only every four years. 
And so we need this rivalry. We need rivalries to be developed even, even more so than that. And so when college football season starts, oh, yeah, I'm an Ohio State fan, bleed scarlet and gray. You're a Michigan fan? Get out. Go to the state up north. I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you. How can you be such a traitor? And so no longer is the country distinction enough. Now we go to state distinctions. Or if there's a couple colleges in the state, then we go to even more local distinctions than that. And then we break it down to even a, another level, and that's we fight with our neighbors who live just two miles from us when it's high school sports season. And Jackson's better than North Canton. And, and then there's that rivalry. And we like live two miles from one another. But we've got got to have that rivalry engaged. And we understand that in sports. But here's what we see too. It's on display outside of sports. We see it in political parties. We constantly see Republicans going against Democrats and Democrats going against Republicans. We see it in neighborhoods. As one neighborhood adds a gazebo to add to their air of superiority, and then the neighborhood across the street adds a pond, and there just becomes this battle over which neighborhood is superior, which is the greatest. And we can even see this within our families as there's sibling tension, as we try to outdo one another, which makes for an entertaining, although miserable, Thanksgiving dinner. And so we see rivalries everywhere in our lives. And sometimes they're manufactured, but sometimes they're legitimate. And as we look in Ephesians chapter 2, what we're going to see this morning, beginning in verse 11, is we're going to see a rivalry had started in the church. And it started between two groups of people. It started between the Gentiles and the Jews. The Gentiles who were uncircumcised the Jews who were circumcised. And so this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, we read this. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we see this alienation. We see it going on between Gentiles, and we see it going on between Jews. Now, Jews, Jews were God's chosen people. We see that all the way back in Genesis as, as God establishes a covenant with Abraham. That's where it begins. He instills within that covenant the sign of circumcision, that all are to be circumcised as a marker of the covenant that God had made with Abraham to give him a people, to give him a promised land to give him a nation, and to give him land. And so God, as a sign of that covenant, instructed Abraham to have everybody circumcised. Well, what went on after the Jewish nation was established was some Jews intermarried in spite of the fact that they weren't supposed to. They intermarried with Gentiles. They had, they had children. Those were Samaritans. They were half-Jews. They were a half-breed. And then there were just Gentiles. They were completely non-Jewish. Now what we see is we see the social alienation and the social tension throughout the scriptures. We see it, we see it highlighted in a couple places in the New Testament. We see the, we see the highlighted uh, 
the highlighted trouble that Jews had with Samaritans in John chapter 4. We see Jesus there. He walks through Samaria, which most Jews never would have done. They would go miles out of their way to avoid, the, to avoid Samaria altogether. Jesus goes to the heart of it, and he interacts with a woman at the well there, and he introduces himself as the Messiah, and she looks at him, and she wonders, what are you even doing talking to a Samaritan? That is, the social, that is the social rivalry that was going on between Jewish people and between Samaritans. Between Gentiles, this also was going on. To the point that Paul and Peter in Galatians chapter 2 have an enormous fight. Because what Peter had done is he had gone and he had interacted with Gentiles. He had shared with them the gospel. But then as soon as some Judaizers came around, what Peter did was he neglected, he neglected the Gentiles and he acted like he had nothing to do with them and he didn't even know them. And the apostle Paul said to Peter, no, salvation is available to everyone. But there's this social alienation that's going on. And it's going on in the church of Ephesus as we see here in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's just, you're different. You're different. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And what the Apostle Paul's getting at here is the circumcision that the Jewish individuals here were clinging to so much was not a sign of any spiritual maturity. It was not a sign of any spiritual process. It was purely physical. And we see in Romans uh, chapter 2 between verses 25 and 29 the outward expression that circumcision had begun, had begun to just be of so many people. And it was just an outward thing and it wasn't a true indicator of the heart. And God is always worried about the heart. God is always worried about the heart. So much of what we do in our spirituality, so much of what we do oftentimes is, is done on a level that it is seen in public, and, and so much of what we do is, is outward, and it, it should be because as we enter a relationship with Jesus Christ, what He's called us to do is to be His hands and feet. He's called us to serve people. He's called us to love people. He's called us to take His message and to, and to share it with people, share the hope that we have. So much of what we do in our spiritual relationships is outside of ourselves, and yet that's the easiest to fake. I would submit to you, it's easy to go to church and to raise your hands during a worship song. It's easy to pray. Many times, the outward indicators are easy. But what God wants is the outward indicators to be a legitimate overflow of the condition of our hearts. God's after your heart. That's what God wants. He wants your heart. Not just outward expression, but the heart. So there's the social alienation, which, which leads to a bigger problem, and that's spiritual alienation. So the Gentiles are socially alienated from the Jews, but the spiritual alienation that they experienced was even greater. As we recap verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God 
in the world. Now, we don't have time to break down all the, the, just all five of these in, in full, but here's what they are. Number one, they were alienated spiritually because they were without Christ. They were without Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. He was, he was the promised seed of, of the Jewish nation. He came, and the Gentiles, they were to be evangelized by the Jewish people, but Jesus came as the Messiah. They were without Christ. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers from the covenant promise. The covenant promise of God was this, that he would establish a prophet, a priest, and a king for his people, for his nation, Israel. A prophet, a priest, and a king. They were strangers from that covenant promise. As a result of not having Jesus, they had no hope. They had no hope. And lastly, they were without God in the world. That's the condition. Without Christ, alienated, strangers, hopeless, and without God in the world. That was their plight. The passage continues in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Let me read those verses again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. But now, but now, this is the condition you, you were in, but now. There's a clear contrast here. It's as clear as the contrast that we discussed last week. We were dead in our sin apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. As a result of a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are made alive. Without a relationship with Jesus Christ, here was the fivefold reality that you were experienced as Gentiles, the Apostle Paul writes. Without Christ, alienated, strangers, hopeless, and without God in the world. But now, there's a new reality that they've entered into, and they've entered into the new reality as a result of their relationship with Jesus Christ. But now, here's the new reality. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, that's you. That's you. There's all kinds of mentalities. There's all kinds of, of ways that people think they're saved. Some think it's because they're American. Some think it's because they were born into a family that follows Jesus. Some think it's because they have a Bible or because they've gone to church or because they've done more good things in their life than they have bad things. 
Unfortunately, the Bible in Romans 5 tells us this, that we are enemies of God in our natural state, in our dead state. We're enemies of God. But now, through Christ. See, the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, doesn't alter a portion of our life. It alters everything about our life. That's why God doesn't want part of you. God wants all of you. Because a saving relationship with Jesus Christ transforms all of you. Not just a portion of you and not just a part of you. You can't compartmentalize following Jesus. He wants everything. Because he's transformed everything. And we who are far off now have a new reality. Available to us by what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. We were dead in our sin. We were enemies of God. But God sent, him, God sent His Son, Jesus, who was fully God, who was fully man. He went to the cross. He died for our sin. He rose again on the third day. He offers us a new reality. Because we all were hopeless. We all were in desperate need. And now in Christ Jesus, we, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. He's our peace. We, who are enemies of God, who are dead in our sin, He is our peace. This world is messed up. I don't need to tell you that. You already know it. I know that a number of you are dealing right now with heartache and hurt. I've had the opportunity to pray with some of you this week and last week over situations that are very near and dear to, to your heart. And there are people you care about, people, people that you love. And you look, at, you look at the situation that they're in, and you just wonder, why? Why? We, 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 look at, we look at people nationally, and we can see this. We look at a guy like Philip Seymour Hoffman, a guy who was incredible at his craft. Successful. In demand. Enough money to never work again. And yet at some point, it wasn't enough. At some point, he needed more. And so the quest for peace led to a needle in a vein. Which led to an early death. How many more stories are we going to need to see? Peace is available. Through Christ. And the reason that Christ is the only path to peace is because that's the only reason we were created. We were created to have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So anything apart from that will not lead us to peace. Because we aren't fulfilling the reason we were created. That's why Christ is the only answer. 
Because he renews a relationship that we messed up with God. And he makes it available to us all over. He is our peace. Now, practically, that's peace on a, on a wide level in our lives. That's peace eternally. We know that we are secure. We know that, that when we depart this body, and we all will because the cost of our sin is death, when we leave this body, God will, God will give us a new body, and we will be a new creation. God's taken away the eternal effects of our sin, and he's allowed us, as we looked last week, to worship him in heaven. But we will still die. That is still the cost of our sin. Christ paid for it. He's forgiven us. But there are still consequences to our sin. And that's why we'll all die. But we have peace. We have peace because we'll live eternally. We have peace in the day to day. Because while we understand that this world a lot of times gives us a raw deal. This isn't our home anyways. This is a temporary place we are. And our home is with our king in heaven. This is the new reality that we can have if we are Christ followers. This is the peace. And it starts within every aspect of our life. But tangibly, when we break it down, there's also another implication to this. Not only does the sacrifice of Christ allow us to find peace and to discover it and to live at peace, but the sacrifice of Christ mandates that we operate with one another in an attitude and atmosphere of peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When Christ was crucified on the cross, as he cried out, it is finished. In the temple, there was a holy of holies, and there was a curtain which separated the presence of God from man. And when Christ paid the price on the cross, when he sacrificed himself, when he died, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating that the dividing wall between God and man, it had been, it had been ripped open as a result of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. But there were also other dividing walls in the temple as well. There was a place just inside the gates of, of, the, of the temple court where the Gentiles could go. It was the court of Gentiles. But that was as far as they could tread. The Gentiles could go and they could experience a worship of God, but they could not go to the innermost parts of the temple. They could not approach anywhere near the areas that the Israelites could. There were walls. Not only did Christ's death rip the curtain in two from the Holy of Holies. Not only do we now have direct access through God as a result of Jesus Christ and what He's done for us, but there's now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between male and females. There was a court where women could go and then they were restricted and then men could go one step closer and then they were restricted and then priests. That's gone. As a result of what Jesus Christ has done and he has accomplished. And he ripped the dividing wall down. So that we could be unified. So that we could have access to him. And we could be unified. 
We must, we must, as a church, we must value unity. Ephesians goes on. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making, pay, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And now the Apostle Paul, he just extends the argument that he's already started with the breaking down the dividing wall and extends it now to Old Testament ceremonial law. The Old Testament, God gave the Israelites laws, that, ceremonial laws, that were designed to make his people distinct. They were designed so that as people would look at them, they would see the distinction, they would see, the, they would see their purity, they would, they would see a noticeable difference, and out of that, the, Isra the Israelites would have an opportunity to evangelize, to tell of the coming Messiah, to tell of the hope that was to come. It obviously didn't work as it was intended to. The Israelites often were inward focused. They were focused on themselves. They didn't evangelize. They didn't go out. So church, let's learn from the example. Let's learn from what's happened. We have peace available to us. We need to be unified. And God's given us a mission. And that mission is to share that hope that we have. It's to share that message of peace. It's to share what Christ has done. The freedom that we have available to us the hope that we have available to us, the peace that we have available to us, all because of the sacrifice of God. This is why we as a church must be unified. Because together we can accomplish more. Together we can accomplish more. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We need to love one another. And this is difficult because we're different. Because you might like the ultimate warrior, and I like Hulk Hogan. See, one of the beauties about the way that God's wired us is he's wired us all differently. He hasn't given us all the same gifts. He hasn't given us all the same talents. He hasn't given us all the same, the same abilities. He's, he's wired us differently. And he's wired us differently for a reason. Because in God's infinite wisdom, he knows that differently we can accomplish so much more than we could if we were all a clone, than we could if we were all exactly alike. 
So this is what the church is called to be. It's called to be a unified organization that takes the gifts of everyone and puts them into practice. Because some people can stand up and talk. Because some people have a passion for going out and reaching those who are far from God. Because some people have a passion to get up early and to load crates and just helping out to set up this equipment so that we can all experience what we're experiencing today. Because some people have a passion to get invested in the lives of other people and to see them through in a process of discipleship. Because some people have a passion to just reach out to somebody else and offer them up encouragement because there's enough discouragement in this world and there's enough that brings everybody down and not everybody is wired in the same way. But let's make sure as a church we utilize our talents and we utilize our energy on those talents and on those gifts. And let's be unified as a church in, in our passion and our purpose. And our purpose is finding those who are far from God and helping them become closer to God. It's taking people on a spiritual journey who already have a relationship with God and helping them grow and develop to become more mature followers. That's the Great Commission. That's what we're about. That's our mission. That's our passion. And we need every gift that's available for that to be accomplished. And so let's just resolve today that the things we're going to be passionate about are reaching people who are far from God and helping people who are already in a relationship with God grow closer to God. And we're going to use our energies and our passions on that and not in some hypothetical situation 10 years from now we decide, hey, we're going to build a building. And I'm not saying we're building a building 10 years from now. This is purely hypothetical. But we're not going to be that church that splits over what color the carpet's going to be in the foyer. We're just not going to put our energy and our passion in that. Let's just resolve that that we're going to be unified and we're going to be passionate about what really matters and what's really important. Not over preference. Christ's death killed the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I don't know what's going on in your life today. But here's what I know. Regardless of where you are, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what's happening, regardless of how hopeless it seems, peace is available. It doesn't have to be found in a job promotion. It doesn't have to be found in a relationship. It doesn't have to be found in accomplishment. It doesn't have to be found in a substance. Because it can't be. The only way it can be found is through Christ. So for those of you who are far from God, I'm just going to encourage you. Today's the day. Today's the day to experience peace. Today's the day to give up. 
surrender. To stop being an enemy. And to be a follower. And for those of you who are here and you're a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you. Peace is not only available, it's yours. It's yours. As a result of what Christ has already done. As a result of His sacrifice. It's available to those who are near and those who are far. On April 9th, 1865, after 600,000 people had died and four years that this country had been torn in two, the Confederacy and their leader, General Lee, sought out the Union leader, General Grant, to forge an agreement on terms of a surrender that would effectively end the Civil War. As the two generals met and agreed to terms, General Lee turned to General Grant. He told him that his army held about 1,000 Union soldiers as war prisoners. And he said that for the past few days, he had no food but cracked corn to give them. He said he had nothing to give his own men to eat. Grant called in his supply officer and ordered him to feed the Confederate army. He told him to send Lee's army enough food for 25,000 men. As the news of the surrender was going out and General Grant returned to his camp, Union soldiers began to celebrate. Artillerymen fired their guns to salute the victory over General Lee. Grant heard the artillery booming and sent orders that it should stop. The rebels are our countrymen, again, he said. We can best show our joy by refusing to celebrate their downfall. The rivalry was over. An attitude of service and respect began. So, let's put this into practice. What, what do we need to do? Number one, we need to be unified. We need to be unified. The way God's wired us, some people are easier to love than others. Everybody understands that. Some people love almost everyone. Some people love almost no one. It doesn't matter. We need to be unified. Through God's grace, through the work that Christ has accomplished, we need to accept one another. Number two, we need to embrace the benefits of salvation. We can forget, for, for those of us who were saved when we were younger, we can forget so easily our plight before salvation. And so to you, I would just encourage you, remember your plight. Remember where you were. Remember you were like the Gentiles. Without Christ. Alienated. 
without the covenant, strangers, and without hope. Remember that which God has done in your life. Don't grow comfortable in your salvation. Don't forget it. Remember, because when we remember, what we remember is that we are saved by grace. We don't deserve it. And we've arrived at a place that we can have peace that was foreign to us before we had a relationship with Jesus because that is why we were created in the first place. And the natural result of that is a passion that for those around us, that their lives would be changed, that they would radically alter the course that they're on, and that they would experience and find the peace that we have found. And lastly, embrace peace. Embrace it. It's available. And it's yours. And I know it's not always easy, and I know sometimes life doesn't go the way we want it to. But God's got a plan. And he came that we could have peace. So right now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask you to pray. The band's going to come up and they're going to play a song. But if there's anybody that you've offended, if there's anybody that you have animosity towards, if there's a rivalry, if it's in this body or if it's in your family or if it's with a coworker, what I want you to do right now is confess it to God. I want you to ask God how best to fix that problem. The best course of action you can make to go and make it right with that person. If there's a lack of unity. Or maybe there's not, but, but you, just, you just want to use this time and thank God for saving you from your plight. Just thank him for the work he's done. Or maybe there's a situation going on right now that has you tired and worn out and exhausted. You can't make it on your own. The great news is you don't have to. I would just ask that in the quietness of this moment, you give that to God. And you just ask that God would let you know how best to respond. Just pray right now. our salvation and let's cling to the peace that Christ provides.
we'd love to see you hang out with us in the comments and, and just enter into a time where we can talk together, fellowship together. There's comment cards on the table. It's great to see you. God bless you. We'll see you.